0: Welcome to the Emerald City Hockey Podcast. Join RJ and Dylan as they discuss each week's Seattle Kraken news and top stories from around the league.
1: All right, RJ, only two games this week, but boy, what a two games they were. Two huge Kraken wins, a plus seven goal differential spread out over the two games, two stellar Grubauer performances. The offense was waking up. I mean, best week for the Kraken so far? Gotta be.
0: I mean, I think it helps just to be back at home, getting into a rhythm and just being able to kind of get your game going and, uh, Playing some opponents, Montreal, I think it helped to play them early on as an opponent. But Minnesota is a darn good hockey team, and uh, the Kraken looked just as impressive against them.
1: Yeah, especially on the road for Minnesota. And, you know, Kraken pulled out that second home win, of course, their first win at home in that Montreal game. A lot of history tied up in that game, a rematch, 102 years in the making, you know, in some respects, right? Technically not the same franchise as the Metropolitans, but certainly the city of Seattle against the Montreal Canadiens. So why don't we kind of start with that game as we break things down? What was, like, maybe your major takeaway from that dominant Kraken win? It's the
0: speed and transition. And in the second period, and we'll, we'll get into the second period being good for the Kraken as a theme here. But particularly in the second period, the transition game was absolutely lethal. And there was a solid six to seven minutes where just every single shift, Montreal, they had the Habs on the ropes. Uh, just bringing the puck right back in the offensive zone as soon as it was cleared. Uh, and they scored a couple goals on that. Yanni Gord with a great move. Uh, around Jake Allen and then Brandon Tanev getting his second of the game. Uh, But speed and transition is my biggest takeaway from that, especially as it's something that the Kraken were working on in practice and were trying to get better. That was kind of the culmination of all of that.
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, that was the one performance that I think you could solidly say was a full 60-minute effort for the Kraken so far this year. Um, And by the end of that third period, Montreal just looked worn out. The speed of the Kraken just completely... You know, wore that team down to nothing through the course of that game. Obviously, being down um, significantly towards the end takes some of the wind out of your sails if you're Montreal in a situation like that. But yes, the transition game was was insane. Uh, just the speed the Kraken were using. They seem more comfortable with that speed. The defensemen seem more comfortable with you know breaking out of the. Uh, defensive zone, you know, moving passes up, trying to get those forwards with speed, entering the offensive zone. Let's not try to just enter along the boards and try to, you know, then you know, four check hard kind of dump in sometimes, right? Like this time it was, no, we're going to enter with speed. We're going to try to score off the breakaway or, you know, try to create two-on-one opportunities, stuff like that. Um, You know, all this stuff that you want to see from a good hockey team, a team you, you know, are thinking is a playoff contender. That was definitely one of those performances for them. Um, Other big thing was, you know, Jordan Eberle gets his first goal as a Kraken, uh, gets that monkey off his back first goal of the game early on in the game, I think that helped things. And, you know, he demonstrated some of that more east west movement that we've seen from the Kraken so far during this homestand that I think has really helped them out. Um as well as, you know, through that throughout that game in addition to the speed, they just they have more of a willingness to go you know, net front on offense and try to, you know, get the dirty goals doesn't always work for them, but it still creates a little chaos in that defensive zone. And I think the Kraken, you know, that's been helping their offense overall.
0: For sure. And I think you mentioned it Eberly, that goal early that just set the tone from the very start. And it wasn't even so much about that they scored early, which of course that was huge, but who got the goal too? I think everybody on the team was thrilled to see that Everly was able to, you know, break out of the slump and that just set the tone for the whole game.
1: Right. And then, you know, it was a complete dominant performance against Montreal start to finish uh, really uh, against Minnesota, a little bit of a rough start. Um, you know, got a got a lucky call for them. Not really a lucky call. The refs made a good call uh, on the disallowed kicked in goal. But, you know, definitely uh, momentum wasn't in their favor at the beginning of that game and maybe a little bit towards the towards the end there in the third. But again, I feel like, you know, the Kraken, they just they put once they put their foot down on the gas, they really don't let up. And it, the onus is really on the other team to try to force their way through that. But the Kraken are so deep, the way they can just keep rolling with speed and physicality. I don't know that many teams are going to be able to stop them once they get going. Right. And, you know, we saw that in the
0: Montreal game, as we mentioned, just kind of wearing them down shift after shift. And you think, well, you know, maybe it's because Montreal's not that good of a team. But Minnesota is a real test. And it looked like early on, it looked like they might go down to nothing, especially, you know, at that... That disallowed goal, where he figured, oh well here we go, this is a, a different kind of opponent again, and it just looked like the Kraken were being outclassed, and then all of a sudden, I mean, they as as Hackstall said after the game, the boys got going. Um, you know, they, he called that disallowed goal a turning point in the game, but he added, it's only a turning point if you get going, and they did, um, and it's great to see that also from like a coaching from a motivational perspective too, um, that when you have a disallowed goal like that too, it's almost like a timeout too, because they have to review it. You can kind of settle down on the bench. It functions as a timeout without having the coach, without the coach having to actually call the timeout. And clearly whatever the message was, basically get going worked. And from that moment on for about 35 minutes of game time, the Kraken were just dominant at that point. They only got two goals out of it. I think the wild were very lucky. The Kraken only got two goals out of it, um, but that's, the exact kind of play you want to see.
1: Yeah, it it really is, and um gives me a lot of hope for moving forward. I do think, you know, as as much as I was saying, it's hard for another team to, you know, break through once the Kraken get going. Really the only, you know, danger for the Kraken, the only enemy they might have in all that is themselves. Um, you know, through that second period against Minnesota, they dominated you know, just about as much as any hockey team can dominate, Uh, certainly an NHL team against another NHL team. um, Just, you know, shots were completely lopsided. The, You know, just the amount of time that the Kraken spent in the offensive zone, just how um, at times, you know, almost incoherent or incohesive they made Minnesota. Like, they were just playing to get shifts, you know what I mean? To get shift changes at some points. And whenever you have a team that against the ropes... It should be, you know, you, you should go for the jugular, which the Kraken were doing through that second period. But then, I, again, I don't know what happens sometimes between the second and third period during that second intermission when the Kraken have a lead, sometimes they just come out to start that third period and they don't have that same intensity. They don't have that same aggressiveness. And, you know, as we saw with a team like Minnesota, if you give them an inch, they're going to try to take that mile on you. And if it wasn't for Philip Grubauer stepping up huge there towards the end, that game could have, you know, we might have seen something similar to what we saw on some of those road trip games. Right. And to start the third period,
0: I, for the first two or three minutes, I will say it looked like the Kraken, um, you know, came out. They, they, that defensive shell wasn't there. They kind of kept the pressure on, I think. But then it went back into the shell. I was about to tweet, you know, oh, it looks like the defensive shell is gone again. This is a great sign. And then they kind of went into that shell a little bit. Uh, so I almost spoke a little bit too soon. It's something I would like to see them clean up. I want to talk about Philip Grubauer for a second because... We talked about the Kraken having you know, maybe 30, 35 minutes of game time where they just dominated. Now, of course, we know what that means. They've had these stretches in the past, and that means that Philip Grubauer isn't seeing a whole lot of high-quality shots on him in that time. And what's happened so far this season usually is the puck comes back the other way. Usually it's a pretty difficult chance to stop too, and he lets it in, and it's a momentum killer, and I think it would have been in that game. But I want... And, and so when the Kraken were so dominant toward the end of the second, I I even tweeted this out. I said, this is going to be a test for Philip Grubauer. He's going to be called upon to make a big save at some point coming up without having seen a lot of action. And he's going to have to make the save where in the past he really hasn't. And oh boy, did he, I, that save at the end of the second period on Kirill Kaprizov, uh, off of a Yanni Gord turnover. And I I guess quick aside, because I want to mention this, um, Gord was asked about that turnover Uh, you know, after the game, and he just first things that you know terrible turnover by me, absolutely unacceptable, and I like that he took ownership of it right away. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't there to sugarcoat anything. He was just took complete ownership, and that's the kind of player that he is, you know. And and I love that about certain players; just they won't, you know, they they won't mince words when they make a mistake. They know it they'll, they'll own up to it and they, and they go out, you know, really try to be better, you know, going forward or have a really good shift two shifts. Um, You know, that's, that's one of my favorite things about players like that. So I just, I wanted to commend Yanni Gord for that first and foremost, but that Grubauer save. um, Apparently I was looking at the expected goals. Uh, Someone tweeted this out that, for the expected, uh, I think that had like 0.25. It was like almost a quarter of an expected goal on that one chance, which is, I think, the highest for any Kirill Kaprizov shot uh, this season, to give a little context to how good of a chance that was. And Grubauer shut the door on him. Uh, And I think that made a world of difference in that game. I mean, if that goes in, it's a tie game going into the third. You know, who knows where the Kraken are at mentally?
1: Yeah, no, Grubauer looked fantastic through both of these games. He really seems confident he has bounced back completely from some of those um rougher uh road trip uh starts for him the other thing is you know going along with that confidence is his leadership his on ice leadership which is something you pointed out during uh, one of the post games do you want to just kind of quickly bring that up a bit and let anybody who didn't hear that uh in on what i'm talking about that's right and i was talking about that i believe it was after
0: the montreal game but you saw it in the minnesota game as well And one thing I love that Grubauer brings is communication with the defenseman. And you saw it in the second period of the Montreal game on the Yanni Gord goal and the Brandon Tanev goal, where it was a long shift for Montreal. They were able to clear the puck out of the zone. It went all the way back down to Grubauer. He stops the puck up, gets it ready for the defenseman. But he doesn't just leave it there. He's yelling at the defenseman. He's barking at the defenseman, telling him that there's a forward forward all the way up on the far blue line and get a pass over there quickly and tells him exactly where the forward is. And so the defenseman without having to look up the ice, cause he's going back to get the puck. He's able to just instantly fling the puck back without looking because he knows, cause Grubauer's has told him where the guy is. And it results in a chance for the Kraken twice after that second Brandon Tanev goal. I don't think it showed on the broadcast, but I was watching Tanev. He comes back to the bench, does the fist bumps and immediately points at Philip Grubauer all the way on the other end of the ice. Like, hey, buddy, that was you. The pass coming up. Um, So Tanev knew he saw where the play started. um, And I love that communication from Grubauer. And that's just one of the cool things that he brings that, you know, you don't necessarily see that. Uh, from every goalie and it's not the thing that shows up most obviously obviously their job is to stop the puck but he's able to do things beyond that that can even help the offense
1: yeah and that's awesome to see that's exactly kind of i think some of what um Ron Francis wanted when he brought in Grubauer, right? Like that's one of the things that uh was visible last year from Grubauer on that avalanche team that was obviously a very very good team. Uh it just it wasn't just his, you know, ability to stop the puck, it was all the other stuff he could bring uh forward as well, especially with a fast speedy team that's really good in transition like in Colorado. His ability to bring that over here into Seattle, uh, which is also tr- starting to develop a speedy transition game, uh, and, hopefully and we can you know, have similar. I results. did mention,
0: I did mention that on Twitter, just the Grubauer communication thing, and I saw some Avalanche fans that had picked that up. and said, I want. It seems like we've been struggling in transition this year. I wonder if Grubauer's absence might be a reason why. I haven't watched a lot of Abs hockey, but you know, I I, I do wonder if that's what they're seeing. You know, it could be an understated part of his game.
1: Yeah. And, and that is one of those things maybe you don't think about right off the cuff, uh, when you lose a goalie that, Hey, maybe our transition game is going to get a little worse, but, uh, I think there are some goalies out there that is that, that, that would be the case for, and it seems like Rubair might be one of them. I think the other player though, that deserves to be talked about a little bit for this week was Hayden Fleury yeah, off- offensive juggernaut of a defenseman, Hayden Fleury. I mean, that's what he's been known for throughout his career. Um, Now, I don't know. I've talked about this, I think, during our post expansion draft uh, stuff, uh, some of our season preview stuff, some of our line preview stuff, all before the season. That I was not a Hayden Fleury fan, uh, mostly because I felt like the best aspect of his game was his shot that he completely refused to use for years and years at the NHL level. He's just refused to use his shot. Comes to Seattle, it's his third NHL team. He's a couple years into his career now. And, uh, boy, is he shooting tied for the team lead in shots on goal with five in that Montreal game comes out in the Minnesota game, leads the team in shots on goal, or again, ties this time with Donskoy with six shots on goal. So 11 shots on goal for Hayden Fleury through these two games. Of course, he picks up the two big goals in the Minnesota game. Um, he must've solidified his spot in this lineup now, right? Absolutely. I, I, you can't take him out of the lineup after these
0: last couple games. And I don't know what happened. It's like a switch just flipped in his mind as far as a mindset of what to do with the puck. And he's just decided to shoot like he's Brent Burns or, you know, like these defensemen who just keep slinging the puck at the net. And it's worked out so well for him. I mean, we pointed this out after the Montreal game where the points hadn't come yet for him, really. You know, he wasn't scoring goals yet. um, But we just saw a difference in how he played. And then in the Minnesota game, all of a sudden the bounces start going his way and the floodgates open. I mean, he had that six, he got that six shot on goal, like, with 12 minutes to go in the second period of that game. And that's, by the way, that's the most shots on goal that any Kraken has has had in a game. Six is like the single game high for any Kraken game, any player. And he got it in the second period, like less than halfway through. So, I mean, he was just putting pucks on net like crazy, but it was something to watch. I mean, there was there was a palpable excitement there um, you know, in the arena for like whenever Hayden Fleury got the puck, because you, you knew it was going on net. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, you know, congrats to him on figuring that out. Um, and after the game, he was all smiles. Uh, and he was asked, you know, did you kind of see this coming after, uh, you know, how the Montreal game went? And he said no, and then just kind of <laughs> gave a chuckle, like no. Uh, but you know, he, he must, he must now, uh, <laughs> he must now see what the difference uh, that shooting the puck makes.
1: Yeah, and you know, his shot is. It is one of the better, you know, pure slap shots that you'll see out there. It's a really heavy shot. If that, you know, connects with the goalie, there is going to be a rebound. There's not much a goalie can do. Maybe you try to swallow it up uh, in your pads somehow uh, in your chest. But certainly if if the shot was low, it's bouncing off those pads for a rebound. But what has always been interesting, and this goes all the way back to his WHL days, is he gets excellent speed, he knows how to leverage his tall frame to get a lot of speed on his slap shot, Um, but he has very precise control with it, and he knows how to elevate it. And that's, that was one of the things that frustrated me during his time in Carolina was I felt like, look, you're not just a guy who can throw some slappers there to try to get rebounds because they're low, heavy shots. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's a bunch of defensemen like that throughout the NHL. I really always thought he had the ability to be one of these guys who could just rip one and just blow it past a goalie, you know, under their arm or even over their shoulder at times because he's, he's so good at elevating it while keeping that control and speed. Uh, so I'm really excited to see that. Other interesting thing to note uh, from that wild game, he had four minutes, uh, more than four minutes less than any other defenseman time on ice wise. Like I noticed that,
0: I, and especially given how he was playing, I, I yeah, I don't I don't know what that was about. I mean, maybe it's the fact that they were kind of defending a lead for so long, and you want to put out, I guess, more defensively responsible guys. Not even that Flurry isn't that because he's still good defensively, um, but yeah, it was an oddity. I'd like to see if his uh, ice time goes up going forward. I mean, the Rangers game, we're recording this before the Rangers game tonight. um, So we'll see if if that happens on the back-to-backs, particularly with, you know, guys just needing more rest on back-to-backs. I think you'd want to kind of more evenly distribute the ice time. So we'll see if he gets that ice time.
1: Yeah. And, you know, a lot of games this week too, in addition to the back-to-back. Also interesting if at some point Hextall, you know, gives him a little bit of power play time too. Uh, just if he continues this barrage of shooting the puck and, you know, offense comes from it. I, I think that might be something you might see sneak in at from time to time. Um, before we kind of move on past this, anything else you want to talk about from these two games?
0: Uh, no, I think we covered just about everything. I mean, it. I, oh, I guess one thing, okay, no, one thing I do want to mention is uh, the atmosphere with the crowd. I think each of these first three home games has been louder than the last. And it's just steadily bumping up and up higher. I mean, this past game was the first one that I felt like this is really in the top end of NHL arenas noise-wise that I've been to, and it was really driven by the fans too. A lot of the we talked about in Vegas how like the audio effects were really loud, and that's kind of what drove how loud it was. Um, They're definitely not as loud here, and it's all fan-driven noise-wise, and so you really get a sense of of kind of where the energy is at. And uh, I'm looking forward to tonight, the Rangers game, because it's just been louder and louder and louder each of the three home games. So I expect another step up tonight.
1: Yeah, and it should be a nice, fun, rowdy crowd on Halloween night. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I think that'll bring a little extra juice to it, too. Um, yeah, and after these games, eight games into the season now for the Kraken, a 3-4-1 record, uh, seven points so far. Minus three goal differential so far, but you know that's been improving. Like I said, they were plus seven through those last two games this past week that's good to see the division is starting to shape up a little more like how we expected vegas and the kraken are on the rise teams that started off uh really hot like san jose maybe cooling off a little bit so um that'll be interesting to see it's going to be a really fun matchup uh tomorrow night for us monday night for everybody else listening uh day of against edmonton because i think that's going to be Uh, you know, since the Vegas game, their first real test against a team we know is going to be really solid in this division. So really excited for that. Um, So looking ahead, kind of just more broad, uh, broadly around the NHL, uh, try to bring in some NHL news. Obviously, the NHL league-wide news this week was dominated by the... um, Blackhawks sexual abuse scandal news and all of the findings and just everything that came from that, uh, ended up affecting multiple teams, lots of information to get through here. So, um, just as a kind of a quick rundown of everything that led to what happened this week, uh, back in May of this year, two former Blackhawks players, um, accused former video coach Brad Aldrich of sexually assaulting them during the 2009, 2010 season, um, One of those players filed a lawsuit against the Blackhawks for failing to adequately address uh, his wrongdoings or filing police reports, really doing anything. Um, That player had been anonymous as a John Doe. This week came forward in an extremely emotional interview um, with TSN. That player was Kyle Beach. I highly recommend anybody, if you want to know anything about this or um, I just think it would be good for everybody to go see that interview, just because you really, um, it's it's very very emotional, um, but it you know it gives you a sense of the the damage that was done here, and it kind of puts more into perspective how poorly the Chicago Blackhawks handled this, how poorly their leadership handled this, how you know, the fact that they didn't really do anything and how the NHL didn't really do anything. The PA didn't really do anything. I mean, he, he really talks about all the places he went for help that, you know, all basically turned their backs on him. Um, so I, I recommend, you know, if, if you can just know it is emotional. Um, it is not, it is, it is a heavy watch, but I do recommend you watch that, uh, for some more context, uh, straight from him, Kyle Beach. Um, So the NHL, back when all this started, when the lawsuit was filed and stuff, they decided they were not going to investigate it. They were going to let the Blackhawks investigate it, which seems insane considering they were the ones investigating it originally in 2010. Um, They ended up, though, hiring an independent law firm, uh, Jenner and Block, to come in, which was good, Uh, and their findings came out this week, and um, as part of the fallouts, they They announced that basically, you know, much of the um, front office staff, the leadership of the Blackhawks organization knew what had happened to these two players. Um, They knew that both the assaults had taken place, that these assaults had taken place in some instances with threats of violence. You know, already you have this power dynamic where you have a coach assaulting two young members of the team trying to make the roster right they're not even on the roster yet so they're already you know feel like they shouldn't necessarily be coming forward or um, you know you have a lot of negative power dynamics working in their favor on top of that he threatened them physically uh, with a baseball bat at one point um, so they're they're worried about their careers physically worried about their careers from a coaching standpoint that's how you you know, get this. I know some of the Blackhawks upper management brought up, they they couldn't see how this could happen, you know, to these big, strong professional athletes, whatever. Well, that's how it can happen because these players are trying to fulfill their lifelong dream of making the NHL at the age of 20 in Kyle Beach's standpoint. And this coach could, you know, completely, you know, jeopardize that, uh, if they don't do what he wants, that's exactly how this stuff happens. That's how it happens in workplaces all over the place. And, um, you know, we have to understand that, that that isn't just because, you know, it's, oh, it's somebody who's more physically dominant. Power dynamics are a large reason of why people feel that they can get away with this. And in this case, he was able to get away with it for, you know, 10 years, as far as uh, the Blackhawks were concerned. Anyway, as part of it, they found that there were meetings held by uh, Blackhawks you know, uh, hockey operations staff, Stan Bowman, who was GM of the team at the time, uh, Al McIsaac, who was vice president of hockey operations. They were both still with the Blackhawks. They are now no longer with the Blackhawks after the findings of this report. Joel Quinville was made aware of it. Um, It sounds like from my readings of the um, report that was issued, when this was brought up, they kind of put it on Quinville because he was a member of Quinville's coaching staff. Quinville decided... He didn't want to do anything because they were heading into the playoffs and he didn't want to upset the apple cart going into that 2010 playoff run, of which we know, of course, the Chicago Blackhawks won their first of their three Stanley Cups in that uh, window there. Um, So that, you know, that really coming out against Quinville, Quinville had previously denied it, then later said that he knew about it, but didn't know the extent of it. And then this report came out. That led to him resigning after meeting with Commissioner Gary Bettman. Uh, He resigned as head coach of the Florida Panthers. Absolutely should have. He should not be coaching in this league uh, anytime soon, if ever again. And uh, ultimately, the most recent thing to come about it is uh, Blackhawks owner Rocky Wirtz has requested that Brad Aldrich's name be crossed off the Stanley Cup. The Hockey Hall of Fame and the NHL have both, you know, there was some confusion about who had the authority to do that between the NHL and the Hockey Hall of Fame. Um, But they have decided that they are going to uh, X out his name, essentially. They can't remove the name, but they can X out his name, you know, this is a guy Brad Aldrich who not just assaulted these players with the Blackhawks, but after he was, uh, after he was basically talked into resigning after that playoff run, went to coach college hockey at uh, Miami University, Miami of Ohio. Uh, assaulted multiple players there, is let go from there again without like any you know police involvement, anything like that. He assaults players and interns there, and then goes to a high school where you know he was accused and convicted of sexual assaults of minors. (laughs) Like, I I don't know why at that point, his name wasn't taken off the Stanley cup at that point. Why, you know, the NHL didn't maybe revisit some of the things that the two uh, Blackhawks players had brought up at the time, why the Chicago Blackhawks didn't decide to revisit any of those uh, things. But um, that's kind of the lowdown of everything that happened this week. It's, you know, I feel pretty good about, you know, guys like Stan Bowman, Al McIsaac, Joel Quinville, not having jobs anymore after those findings of them knowing about it and making that decision to just, we'll just keep going through this playoffs. Let's try to just focus on winning the Stanley Cup and maybe we'll deal with it later. I think that's absolutely the worst uh, way to handle a situation like this. Um, Do you have any thoughts, RJ?
0: No, I'm absolutely, I mean, I have to agree. I just, it's it's just a shame uh, how the, how Kyle Beach was just he did all the things you're supposed to do he went and reported it right away to multiple <laughs> to multiple people to multiple I mean this is exactly how you're supposed to handle something like this and just at, at turn after turn he was failed by the people who were supposed to be protecting him um, and it's it's just awful to hear about. I watched that whole interview again. I would also recommend that you watch it. If you, if you feel that you can, um, can do that because it is a very emotional watch. It was very difficult to watch. Um, but it was so important that what he, what he did and what he said. Um, and, um, I just, I have to admire that bravery too. Um, because hopefully this is going to help, you know, create a better situation in the future so that this doesn't, you know, this is prevented from happening again. Um, yeah, I just, I have no issue with, with the, with the people who, uh, you know, who allowed this to happen, you know, who failed him at every turn, you know, being, being out of jobs.
1: Yeah. Um, the, I guess the one other person that met with Bettman who it's a little more unclear what his role in anything was, was a uh, current uh, Winnipeg Jets GM, Kevin Um After the meeting with Gary Bettman, Gary Bettman said basically that he wasn't really involved and he wasn't really aware of what was going on. So he didn't feel that it was necessary to take, uh, you know, to administer any punishment to uh day off. I guess we'll just have to trust on that one. Um, uh, he wasn't as senior in any of the leadership as all of these other people. So I, I guess that is possible. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really rough situation for all involved and, What's so frustrating for me is, and this is something I feel like all sports is getting better about uh, as time moves on, as we get further and further into, you know, this century. And I feel like it's going to be one of the big things of this decade for sports in general is realizing that, you know, the players are the product and that, you know, for, for really all of time, the organizations have always been kind of the. The thing that we view right and they feel like the organization is more important than any player it's more important than the people involved within the organization whether that's coaches management players all that stuff it's you know, it's the classic protect the shield if you're the NFL and all that stuff. But I do feel like the tide is turning as we are slowly, you know, finally realizing that all of these players, all of these coaches, all of these people in management, all these league officials, everybody, they are human beings. And there are some things that human beings should not have to put up with in a workspace, regardless of what the job is, uh, regardless of how much money they make, regardless of anything. And um, I feel like, you know, this is a, big opportunity for the nhl to learn that lesson um i commend kyle beach for coming forward and really putting this at center stage i think it's um once again unfortunate a lot of times for the nhl this is their exposure to most sports fans right Uh, for years uh that was you know one of the things we always talked about right the nhl never made sports center or anything unless it was something bad Right. Espen didn't have the rights to them. Nobody you know, cared or whatever. And, and I do feel like there is a good you know, there was a good 10 year stretch where this was really all people saw from the NHL. And just as the, you know, ESPN is getting the NHL rights back, they're really making a push to show the NHL to all these sports fans that kind of haven't really seen it for a while and promote this product, a sport that, you know, all of us, you know, recording this or listening to it know to be one of the best sports out there. And, and to have this happen and have this come out and and how poorly the PA handled it, certainly the, how poorly the Blackhawks handled it, how all of these systems failed uh, this player, it's just, it's so unfortunate as I felt like the NHL was finally starting to gain some momentum in certainly in the U.S. as far as mainstream sports goes. Um, but yeah, I just think it's about time we kind of realize we're seeing that too with the Jack Eichel situation. Obviously, it's a very different situation, but at the end of the day, he's he's standing up. He's one of the first hockey players to stand up and say, "Hey, this is my body." We're talking about a, a you know pretty serious medical um situation as far as it being a neck injury that could impact not just his playing career but his life, the rest of his life. He's you know only twenty four, and he's saying, "I want to handle it the way I want to handle it." And the Sabres are saying, well, we want to handle it the way we want to handle it. Because, you know, you signed a contract with us. And in in a lot of ways, we, um, you know, they don't own him. But they have significant say over his body. And he's really trying to take a stand on that. And I think that, you know, we should let players take stands on stuff like that. We should let them be their own advocates when things affect them. And I do think this is another example of that. The team did not want to protect this human being. They felt it was more important to win the Stanley Cup. And um, obviously the fallout from that decision was very significant. And, you know, not only does it result in these people losing their jobs later on, um, but it, you know, irreparably changed Kyle Beach's life to the point where only now is he really getting to a point where maybe as all of this is coming to light and things are moving forward that he can, you know, start a healing process for something that, you know, has been going on for over a decade and really robbed him of his dream. So um, not the most pleasant of conversations to have, uh, but something that needed to be had uh, because it is just the most dominant story in all of hockey. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how things play out from here. I do think this is the last we'll hear from it for a while as everything just moves forward legally um, from here on out. Um, otherwise, throughout the NHL, not too many big storylines from this past week would you say rj
0: no i think you, you've you seen basically teams you know kind of go back closer to where you know we thought they would be some of the hot starts cooled down some of the bad starts got a little better um i think we're starting to just see things come together and it's still early in the season so that, that was definitely kind of the, the main storyline
1: yeah not even uh you know a full what eighth of the way through the season yet uh yep. nobody's reached- uh, double digits, yeah. You know, Connor McDavid leading the league in points. We knew that was going to happen. Ovechkin scoring goals like nobody's business as he tries to get to to Gretzky's mark. That's pretty exciting, but uh,
0: let's hope I want to see that.
1: Yeah, I think we all do, but uh, we'll go ahead and move on now to our mailbag section of this week. It's been a while since we've done this on the podcast, RJ. Uh, since we've had Mailbag Segment, uh, we got some good questions from all of our listeners. Uh, why don't you get us started?
0: Yeah, and we'll start. Uh, you mentioned Connor McDavid uh, leading the NHL in scoring again. We all knew that was going to happen. Uh, and I guess we'll, we'll start with a question uh, from Robert on Twitter. How do we stop Connor McDavid on Monday?
1: Uh, I mean... Short answer is you don't like. Well, yeah, you, you
0: can't <laughs> stop Connor McDavid. You can only hope to contain him. But how do the Kraken contain him?
1: You know, it's it's hard. Um, I would say look back to the playoffs last year. I thought, um, I'm, oh my gosh, I'm totally spacing. Who knocked Edmonton out of the playoffs last year?
0: It was Winnipeg, I believe.
1: Yeah, it was, and they did a really good job slowing him down throughout that series. Um, and and it was basically through just trying to, you know double triple team him whenever he has the puck really try to suffocate him put put all the pressure on connor's line mates to make things happen instead of him and uh you know they weren't able to get it done with without mcdavid really there so i I guess that's what i would do is just try to kind of you know suffocate his his space don't let him build up speed because that's really how he gets you um obviously the transitions are hard i think Maybe if you play aggressive along the blue lines, yeah, sometimes it might not work. But, you know, we saw that from the Kraken in, in some of those games at the beginning of the season where they really tried to stand tough at the blue line. That might be possible given the the reach some of these blue liners have, but I don't know. Yeah, you definitely want to be careful if you're defensive about when to pinch in, when
0: to, you know, not leave a whole lot of space. Uh, yeah, that's one thing to focus on. Uh, personally, I mean, the only other thing, I guess you, you can't, you're not at home, so you can't worry about matchups. I mean, that's what's going to be so tough is, um, you know, if I was at home, I'd, I'd try and get the Yanni Gord line on him uh, a bit more. We saw Gord, Yarncroke, and Tanev do a fantastic job shutting down Kirill Kaprizov uh, in the wild game. And I think that's probably the guys you want to have on the ice against McDavid, but not being at home, they're not really going to have that option. So, um, yeah, I think just try and suffocate his space. That's a good good way of putting it. Yeah. Uh, next question from Nathan, uh, who has given you more than you expected about what you expected and who did the Kraken need to see more from? So, I mean, we could, you know, take the larger exercise of sorting every player into those three categories, but I think we should just each name one from each category, uh, that that we think it, I'll go first. Um, as far as who's given us more than, given me more than I expected, uh Brandon Tanev is the first name that comes to mind um you know there are certain things that we know he brings defensively energy wise I don't think any of us saw six goals happening you know leading the team in goal scoring I certainly didn't um so that would be the player I think gives more than expected uh about what I expected it's tough because there are a few you know a lot of players you kind of known commodities they've they've done as advertised I probably think of the one that I that I would think the most though is is probably Philip Grubauer uh, we know, you know what, he's a great goaltender. We know, um, you know, he, he's just basically brought it, you know, every single night. And, um, yeah, I would say he's probably given as expected and he's, you know, he's had a few rough stretches too, but what goalie doesn't. So I think that's probably what, what I've expected from him. Um, and as far as the player that I want to see more from probably Mason Appleton and not cause I think he's been the worst per se, but because his ceiling is so much higher, I think than what we've seen. So far, he's injured right now. We don't know when he's going to be back, but when he does come back, I think it might be a good you know, way to almost kind of clean slate and just go from there. So Appleton, I'd like to see more from. What do you think, Dylan?
1: Yeah, I like Turbo as the guy who's, you know, given a little more. Obviously, he's one off his goal total from all of last season already. So you could definitely say he's been a little bit of an offensive surprise. I'm going to stick with Hayden Fleury, though, because I think he was borderline to be on this team. Obviously, was borderline to be on this team into the season starting. But if he continues this run that we talked about earlier... I mean, he could, you know, he could be a really dominant force for this team and be a big reason why they not only make the playoffs, but maybe, you know, make some things happen in the playoffs. So I'm going to say Hayden Fleury. Granted, it's a small sample size. Um, As far as players getting what we've expected, I want to say Adam Larson just because he's my boy. (laughs) I'm going to go ahead and say Yanni Gord, though. I think we knew he was going to come in. He was going to bring passion. He was going to bring energy. He was going to bring on ice leadership. Uh, and he 's going to bring that solid two way game you know we see him back checking back behind the goal line in the defensive zone he back checks all the way, plays that full two hundred uh, foot game he He knows how to use speed and creativity in the offensive zone and we 've seen that from his game so far this year, so I think yanni Gord's bringing you know we had high expectations for him and and he's living up to those high expectations and As far as guys, I want to see a little bit more from um, as much as I want to say, like, you know, just Will Borgen. Like, I just want to see him in general. Uh, that's really more of a hackstall thing than anything else. Um, you know, I might kind of split it between Jaden Schwartz and Jordan Eberle. You know, we they both yeah. have had some offensive struggles so far this year. Um, I felt like at times with Jaden Schwartz, he's maybe not quite settled into what his role is offensively as far as should he be a net front guy? Should he be trying to make things happen, you know, maybe behind the net. Uh, There are just some games where he doesn't quite know where he's fitting in in this current, like, Kraken system. And then as far as Eberle goes, there were just some games where it just, you know, he he didn't seem to want it offensively. He wasn't really taking shots where I thought he should be taking shots. Like, you know, have that shooter mentality, have that goal scorer mentality where you're going to, you know, be taking seven shots a game uh, and, and knowing that, you know, at, at some point one will go, go in. And, and I feel like some of that was missing. He's bouncing back from that though, lately since the homestand started, but, uh, but I think those would be the two guys that, you know, I think we all kind of expected a little more from.
0: agreed. I think those are some, some good picks. You had a few of my backup picks on that. Um, next question from Brian and I like this one. It's a fun exercise. So he says just for fun, if Arizona or any other team were to fold, and a new team were to take their place, but using the expansion draft, who would you protect on the Kraken? So already turning around just after the expansion draft, and assuming there's another one, and because, of course, the Kraken don't get the special treatment like Vegas did, you know, the <laughs> Kraken are eligible uh, to have a player select in the expansion draft. Figure out, okay, wh- who, what, what players are the Kraken uh, protecting? Now, I think we've got to go with the seven-three-one protection option. I think that's probably the way to go to start with. Um, Yeah. Goalie. Yeah. Yeah. I was
1: going to, I was going to say, I would agree with that just because, you know, normally you'd want to say, well, they got tons of great defensemen and go four and four, but you're only going to lose one of these defensemen. So you don't have to worry about that too much. Exactly.
0: Um, I guess we'll start in net. That's probably the easiest one to protect. You got to protect Philip Grubauer. Yeah. Um, You know, as good a goalie as Chris Drieger is got to protect Grubauer. So, Onto the defense, Um, you got to select three defensemen to protect, and this is probably the hardest choice to make. Um, I I think you've got to go with Alexiak as one of them. Agreed?
1: Yeah, I I was going to say, for me, the... Larson? Who's the most shoe-in? Larson's the most shoe-in, Dunn is second, and then I do think Alexiak, but I don't know that he would be a total lock.
0: Okay, okay. So yeah, I I had Alexiak, Larson, and Dunn as my three um If not Alexiak, I mean, are you thinking Hayden Flurry? I mean, obviously we've got to talk about Giordano. He's the captain. You know, he's doing so much. But for the same reason, the Flames didn't protect him. He's just got one year left on that deal. You know, he's older. I, it's just it's a tougher pick for another team to make. But yeah. I mean, the Kraken did it. So
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, in this scenario, you're talking about next off season, he'll be 39. He's going to be a free agent. So yeah, there's not really a point in protecting him just like there wasn't for Calgary.
0: Yep. So those would be the three defense, but I think we can agree on the forwards. uh, There's a little more guesswork here. Um, I think you've got to obviously Yanni Gord for sure. Uh, Schwartz and Eberle, as much as we said, we'd like to see more from them. Mm Got to be in the top seven. Uh, Brandon Tanev for Mm -hmm. sure. Cannot let him go. Uh, Jared McCann would be another one. I think you'd want to protect that leaves two forward spots for debate um and for me i'll start with my two that i went with i went with morgan geeky and mason appleton now that might wow. be a little controversial i think you're gonna agree- disagree with that yeah um all right who would you go with for those final two forward spots and then we can kind of hash it out
1: why um you know i i know this guy could also fall in that category of maybe wanting to see a little bit more from him but uh alex wenberg i think should I be did and okay. and the really the one guy I think should absolutely be a lock is Cali Yarn Like, mm. I I think yeah. He, see, he brings it's the so contract much.
0: term. It's just the one you're left on his contract, which is what gave me pause. Yeah, I and guess
1: I'm not looking at the contract stuff with this. Whereas but... whereas
0: geeky, I mean, you've got the team control. I, I geeky for the upside for me. Appleton, I figured is the one you would take issue with. Um, and it goes back to my strategy of. You want to, again, keep in mind, they can only take one of these players, whether it's forward, defenseman, goalie, whatever. I, and personally, if it's me running an expansion draft, I want to ensure that if I get a good player taken, it's someone um, that takes up a lot of salary, that frees up a lot of cap room, and cap space, as we know, still so valuable. I know the Kraken do have plenty of it, but you know, to, to free up 4.5 in Wenberg's case, a uh, 3.9 million in Donskoy's case or you we know, one of the defensemen. I'm just trying to entice the other team I guess to
1: clear some salary off the books. Um, yeah. So that
0: would be my pick. Versus Appleton is cheap. Um and I still believe in the upside there.
1: Yeah, but then you'll lose somebody like a or you'll lose Ryan Donato who we've seen how, you know, integral he is into this offense for some reason. Right, well, if, <laughs> well
0: if you lose Donato, then you then not protecting Wenberg and Donskoy is irrelevant then
1: yeah i'm just saying i i think that's not over appleton maybe i i understand your thought process for that i Mm -hmm. just don't think it makes sense for this team given their caps situation and the contracts that they have (laughs) they they have no big burdensome cap you know you know me i could
0: always use use some extra cap space freed up i i love that cap space because there's there's opportunities there's possibilities
1: yeah but i also know you wouldn't ever go and give a player a contract you know that was going to eat up that cap space. You'll make sure you always have $10 million in cap space just in case you need it. And then you'll never use it.
0: <laughs> you never know when the next, uh, like Jack Eichel trade target could be available. That's what you use it for. You trade for, trade for a generational player. You sign one if you can.
1: Yep. Either. They're on the
0: market more often than you'd think.
1: Yeah. Well, even if you got to wait three years and you're out of a job at that point anyway.
0: <laughs> yeah. See, that's the problem. <laughs>
1: All right. Next
0: question um, from Elias. Uh, Elias, Elias, any information or analysis of what Max McCormick could do for the Kraken as a fill in for Appleton? So a little context there. Max McCormick was the corresponding call up with Mason Appleton uh, being injured in that last game. Um, So, yeah, he's been up and practicing with the team. Uh, I don't think I, I, you probably haven't seen a whole lot of uh, McCormick because he hasn't gotten into a game. Uh, I've been the one kind of go to the practices, the morning skate. So I'll, I'll kind of take the lead on this one. Um, I think you're going to see, I guess some similar things from to what Appleton has brought so far. And that is a good energy guy. He's always, you know, skating very hard. He's not afraid to, you know, play, get in the corners, get to those tough areas. He's got a pretty good shot. Uh, you know, when, if he gets to the right space for it, he's, he's a good kind of feeling guy. He's from what I've seen, he doesn't particularly excel at any one thing, you know, that makes you just say, wow, but he does everything pretty darn well. You know, he's just, he's well-rounded player. Uh, could be a good energy bottom six guy. I don't know if we'll see him in games, uh, but I like what I've seen from him in practices, skates. And I like that. He's always, you know, one of the first ones out there, one of the last ones to leave. Uh, the work ethic is, is something that I like.
1: Yeah. And uh, yeah, I haven't really seen any of his plays so far. Um, but I will say, you know, just looking at like his AHL numbers or his NHL career so far is yeah, he does seem like that kind of fill in guy. He's, he's, you know, maybe the 15th forward on a team, so to speak. Right. <laughs> uh, where he's, he's the first guy to get called up when there's an injury, but can't quite crack the roster. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, that's, that it just speaks to the depth of the Kraken organization that you can have someone who does have NHL experience uh, who can come in and, in a situation like this.
0: Yep. Um, next. So um, Elias asked another question. Once all the players are back, what players would you see being on the trading block uh, for either a playoff push Uh, Or trading away if the team isn't in the playoff picture? And I'm going to combine this question with another one from Greg. Do you see the Kraken making a trade if they're in playoff contention in January? You know, if so, who are some targets? So people already want to talk about the trade deadline. I think it's a little early to be talking about this. It is Um, so early. already thinking about the trade deadline i mean we we don't know where the kraken whether it's buyers sellers we have no clue we haven't right? seen i mean
1: no we haven't seen two straight games where the kraken have used the same forward lines so yeah, <laughs>
0: um yeah as for players that could be targets and and you know kind of what you know what they're missing i i just think we need a, a better picture of, of of what their needs are because their needs seem to change from one game to the next Um, So, yeah, I, I don't know. As far as... I think we could say, though, if they're not in playoff contention, you know, who they might trade away, and that's because, you know, you kind of plan for these things. Vegas certainly planned for that in their first season. You know, guys like James Neal, I think, you know, David Perron, these guys on expiring deals where... The plan is if you're not in contention, these are the guys you're trading away. Turns out they were very much in contention, so those guys ended up not getting moved. Um, but certain guys, I, I you know, I hate to say it, Bark Giordano probably. If the Kraken just happened to bottom out, you know, he's probably a guy that gets moved. Um, you know, the, a lot of the pending UFAs, Callie Yarncrook possibly. Um, because his contract's up at the end of the year. You know, some of these other guys have term, but you basically look at who's going to be a, a free agent next season, maybe one of the defensemen, Carson Soucy, you know, who's been out of the lineup recently. Um, Cause they never made that defense trade that we thought was coming. Mm-hmm. Um, And if you're toward the bottom of the standings, you know, maybe you want to trade him, get Will Borgen some ice time, perhaps, you know, do those sort of things.
1: Yeah. I, I believe Ron Francis, when he said, you know, he was kind of having a more long-term approach to building this team through the expansion draft. And so I, I don't know that there's really many people that they would, be interested in moving even if the team doesn't look like they're going to be making the playoffs um i agree at some point a defenseman will need to move just because it's crazy to have you know guys like carson Soucy and Bill borgen just healthy scratched every night like that's, that's that's too much talent
0: to be sitting in the press box one of them every game
1: exactly um and then offensively it's still so hard to say because we've still had so many guys you know in and out of the lineup we've had so many injuries we still haven't even seen colin blackwell come in he's someone that all of us think can you know really do some stuff for this team Marcus Johansson was doing some stuff for this team early on in the season before his injury so I I just I don't know that the Kraken would be big buyers I think like you know probably 25 other teams around the league they could use a generational number one overall center and they could use a you know 40 goal scorer but again everyone kind of needs those those are those are needs that aren't exactly unique to the Kraken um, it's just hard for me to comment totally on what I think they, they should do in a situation like that when we're not even 10 games into the season. Yep.
0: And I think you may have just answered the next question I had from, from Scott. He says, hello from Canberra, Australia, which that is cool. We got listeners from Australia commenting in for the Q&A. He said, wondering your thoughts on what player, either a type of player or actual name that we don't have and are missing currently. And that was the answer I was going to give, you know, true number one center, you know, like elite defenseman, you know, number one defenseman, those kind of things that usually you have to, to draft in the, you know, in the top five for sure, or, you know, acquire, you know, to be a trade some other way that the Kraken haven't had a chance to yet. Um, So those would be the needs, but you don't need those guys to win necessarily.
1: No, we've seen teams, you know, go without them and, and be just fine. Um, Yeah. And, and as far as names, I mean, really the only one that has been even talked about trade wise is Jack Eichel and I don't think the Kraken are in on that. Like they don't, that's the other thing, you know, we're talking about, they need kind of these exceptional pieces, right? Cause otherwise they have really good depth. They have a good team. You know what I mean? Like this is a good team. Um, They just don't, they don't have the prospect pool for it. Like you'd be trading away picks that you desperately need. You know, this is one of the issues that I think Vegas is going to start running into uh, as these seasons goes, go on is, you know, they really sold out for their first couple years, you know, being buyers at all these trade deadlines and stuff. And then next thing you know, your prospect pool just isn't there, right? They had, they had an advantage over the Kraken in that they had multiple picks in that first year because of the expansion draft prospect Uh, GM's learned and Ron Francis didn't, wasn't able to stockpile that war chest of draft picks, but that really means that the Kraken are not in positions to be buyers. Certainly not for anything that would be a rental, like uh, you know, some of the names that generally will pop up every year at the trade deadline. So um i know everybody seems to be asking about you know what trades they should make and all that stuff but i would really not be surprised if they were very quiet come trade deadline time
0: agreed i think that would make the most sense you got to hang on to those draft picks yeah um so a a couple another couple questions i'll combine because we have uh kraken atoll and brian asking uh for our three stars so far this season
1: yeah wow that's a good question um I know Grubauer's been a little up and down, but I do think he's got to be one of them. Um, mm-hmm. He's played the vast majority of starts. Don't think that was the plan, but it's it's what <laughs> the plan has become. Uh, NHL season comes at you fast. Uh, I, I think he's got to be up there for one of them. Uh, Brandon Tanev, for sure. We talked about him earlier, right? The Just the energy he brings on top of the surprise scoring he's brought. He's got to be one of them for me. Uh, the third one, though, is a little bit of a toss-up. I I want to say Yanni Gord. I want to say Adam Larson. Um, I don't I don't know. Uh, I mean, probably all, be one I'll... of them. Yeah, make break the tie yeah. for me.
0: Okay, so I had I had Tanev as the first star. Mm-hmm. Um, I I had I want to include Jared McCann. I, I thought that's the name we haven't seen. I mean, he's still the team's leading scorer, and although he's cooled off a little bit recently, he provided some much needed early offense that, you know, and while Gord was out. Um, You know, playing in that center role. So I I think, you know, recency bias, he he probably doesn't, you know, crack the three stars, but I think what he did earlier in the season uh, deserves, you know, deserves some praise. And Yanni Gord was the other one I had, even though he's only played four games. Just wow. Uh, He's brought everything he was supposed to. So,
1: Yeah, it's, you know, it's crazy. Recency bias through eight games. (laughs) I mean, it it sure feels like that's a thing, though. Tenth of the way through the season. It's, yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: All right. Next question uh, from NDA digital. Uh, Don't know if this is touching, if touching this is far too early, but how does the coaching staff uh, staff address or reconcile player expectations and on ice performance thus far from the expansion perspective, e.g. longer contracts offered to players expected to be leaders affecting uh, line positions. So I think it's an interesting question. You know, basically talking about, you know, you have this perception uh, that, that, you know, the coaching staff, the GMs have from the expansion draft of, you know, the contracts they gave out to players, where they took them, you know, versus how much ice time they're getting. Um, and, you know, I, I want to kind of give a better answer than this, but it just I feel like it's still probably too early just because there hasn't been really enough, um, you know, enough of a sample size that I think it's really changing. The coaching staff's idea of where to put guys I think that's just beginning we're just starting to see that like with Eberle dropping down to the third line recently or um the one exception is Tanev Brandon Tanev I mean we've all seen what he's done and I think that that has impacted his ice time for sure he's being kept putting higher and higher in the lineup because
1: well we all know why um so I think that would be the biggest exception what do you think Dylan Uh, yeah. I mean, one thing that's interesting is I, as I just sorted the team based on average time on ice, do you know who their leader is in average time on ice?
0: Average time on ice. Is it Yanni Gord?
1: It is Yanni Gord. So that's kind of wild that a forward would lead your team in ice time. It speaks that is that is very unusual. Yeah. For those who
0: aren't, you know, don't check ice time every game like we do. Um, that is very unusual that a forward would lead your team on an average ice time.
1: Yeah. Uh, usually that would be like your top two pairing uh, defensemen. Which speaks to the depth that they have on defense, that they don't need to rely on just two guys really uh, for, you know, half a game. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean it's 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 really I don't think much changed as far as them being an expansion draft team to just any other team really, right? I mean, if you go out in free agency and you sign guys like uh Wenberg or Jaden Schwartz, um Grubauer doesn't really matter for the time on ice thing, but when you when you go out and you sign guys like that, um even if you count some of the guys like Larson that they signed to the contracts after they picked them, you want them to be, you know, playing appropriate amounts. To what you sign them for, um, and and you know you're always going to start playing them that way. If things don't work out, then they're going to see less and less time in favor of guys that are playing better. That's just kind of standard, I think, for all teams. I don't know that the expansion draft process and maybe the you know the this first year of free agency for the Kraken really changes that uh, much from just what you would see regularly.
0: Yeah. I agree. Um, so, from Darren, next question: Once Johansson and Blackwell are back, what would your forward line four forward lines be?
1: Yeah, <laughs> That's a tough wow. one
0: to come up with on the fly. See, I I was able to because I'm you know the one checking Twitter and and getting these questions compiled. So I was able to to uh, have my have my answer you know pre prepared. So we'll go through mine. Tell me if you'd make any tweaks because I was basing mine off kind of the lines we saw at the end of this most recent game that we've watched the Minnesota mm-hmm. game and things were working so well. So I guess I would start with um, the first line of, of Schwartz Wenberg and Donskoy, which is what we saw at the end of that game. By the way, I want to add a little something about the first versus the second line. Johnny um, Gord got a question the other day, a few days ago um, where he was asked, you know, what is, what is Cali brought to the first line? And he was kind of confused by it for a second. And he's like, wait, what did you say? And then he, the reason he was confused is he said, oh, I, I see, I thought we were the second line. Yanni Gord, so I thought we were the second line. So that's what threw him off. And I realized in the line rushes and warm-ups, it's that Wenberg line that's going first. So Wenberg's line generally is like the first line. Gord's line is technically the second line. So I I've I've tried to start adjusting that now on our, on our lineup things. But anyway, first line. So Schwartz, uh, Wenberg, and Donskoy. I just, that line looks so good toward the end of the game. I would keep that together. And it all kind of fits. I mean, you know, you've got Wenberg with his passing ability, Schwartz with the finishing ability, and Donskoy with the creativity. I just like all that together. You've talked in the past about uh, Wenberg and Donskoy together and how that works. Mm -hmm. Um, And putting Schwartz with them only helps. Yeah. Um, Yep. So my second line, and this is kind of the shutdown line that the Kraken went with, like against Kaprizov, is Gord, Tanev, and Yarncroke. And oh boy, what a shutdown line that is. Put that against, you know, any of the top forwards in the league. You know, I'd want to see that against McDavid, against the Oilers uh, on Monday. Um, yeah, so keep that as your shutdown line. You can give them big minutes against good opposition, and they can score too. Yeah. Um, Third line I had is McCann, Donato, and Eberle. So this isn't this is not one we saw um, in the wild game, but Eberle has been down in the third line recently. McCann's still at center. I think having that center depth really helps you, and I just think Donato would would fit well with those two. I mean, Donato's going to go to the net. He's going to open up opportunities for McCann, and Eberle, you know, provides you some skill there too. What do you think about that line? Because that one I wasn't entirely sure.
1: Yeah, that one I just don't know about Donato centering that line.
0: No, it'd be McCann
1: centering that. Okay, because you said his name first, so that's why I was thinking oh, yeah, you were going left to yeah, right like all line, the other ones. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. Yeah, so I, I guess that changes it a little bit. That being said, I've liked McCann a lot more at winger so far this year. So fair uh, I might want to see a line that is, you know, a geeky centering McCann and Everley as the that third would be line. A great line, I, I,
0: and I did consider that.
1: Yeah, I, yep. that's probably what I would do. But uh, okay,
0: yeah. and, and you know that's not a, that's not a bad option. And so then my fourth line was uh, Geeky centering Blackwell and Bastion. And then, you know, Appleton potentially swapping in as he gets healthy. Um, but yeah, I, I, this line is still what a fourth, you know, a Geeky Morgan Geeky could be your fourth line center. And maybe it is better to play him a third line center. But I just think you're, the mismatches you're going to be able to get from a line like that um, and start Blackwell off there, see how he does and, you know, where you need to move him. So that's kind of my fourth line. Yeah.
1: And, you know, I would make a little bit of adjustments based on, Uh, my changes to the third line but yes it would be some combination of blackwell donato and probably nathan bastion
0: yep and that's a good fourth line
1: yeah all
0: right um one more more question we have uh from from sergeant pickles on youtube um who are the three most improved players like on this homestand compared to how they played on the road trip and we did see kind of a um you know, a switch from the Kraken and how they were playing, you know, the end of the road trip was pretty bad. Um, so who are the three most improved players, Dylan? What do you think?
1: I think Grubauer definitely needs to be in that conversation. Mm-hmm. He's played so much better at home. Like we said, he looks more confident. He's able to hand the long stretches of, you know, not seeing any shots better. Everything's been better from Grubauer. Uh, I think uh, Giordano's been a lot better at home i think he's kind of settled in i think they've kind of settled into the idea that maybe his pairing isn't the top pairing for this team um and i mm-hmm. think that that's situated and and he's be- been better in that position so far and then because um, i can't st- i won't say like you know um yanni gore just because he barely got any time on that road trip so yeah, that would be like way unfair um But, you know, Jeremy Lazan's played a lot better these last couple of games. I was going to mention
0: him. Yeah, Lazan would be one of my three. He's really kind of stepping into, you know, the role. that They gave him the role first, Mm -hmm. and now he's kind of stepping in and playing into it. But that's good to see. Yeah, for Um, sure. The other name I would add is, well, Hayden Fleury. Yeah. For sure. (laughs) I mean, you know, I I think that's just a clear one. Um, Yeah, I I think, let's see, I had Fleury, Lazan, and... um, trying to think of another forward because there there were definitely some
1: um Donscoy's played
0: Donskoy, really well. oh that was the next one I was going to say yeah Donskoy. I was thinking especially defensively too he he had some breakdowns at yeah. the end of the road trip but uh, yeah Donskoy, that's a good one
1: yeah they all did they the whole team yeah. broke down at the end of the road trip yeah
0: so that's kind of it for the mailbag except we did have another question uh another question that we got uh in on Twitter on some of the uh you know, on some of our post-game lives that I think you were going to address.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, as everybody, certainly those of you who have been uh, joining us for the post-game lives or even watching them the next morning, uh, you know, uh, which has been, you know, a lot of you, which both of us, I think are very happy with how all that's been going on. But one of the themes has been RJ going to all these home games, whether it's via, you know, tickets or press box access and uh, you know, I'm just hanging out here at home, so to speak, and, and lots of questions about why that is. Uh, and, uh, you know, accusations of R.J. being just too selfish with
0: R.J., uh, when are you going to let Dylan have the press pass? When are you going to let him join you?
1: Yeah, exactly. So uh, figured we'd address this. Uh, knew we were going to have to at some point. Plans changed a little, which is why we're addressing it now and not sooner. Um As many of you guys know, we are not native to Seattle. We are from Southern California and uh, just kind of due to several things, uh, mostly personal reasons. I haven't been able to, you know, fully make the move up to Seattle. So I'm actually like right now, this set that you're used to seeing for me is here in Southern California for me. So I'm not in Seattle. So it's a little hard to take the press box access uh, when you're, you know. 1800 miles away uh, or what it is. So, you know, it, not I know we've been kind of talking like I've been up there and stuff and I've made references to several things up there, not trying to deceive anybody with that, because I have far more experience really up in Seattle than RJ ever did before he made his move. This is true. Yeah, uh, because my grandparents have lived in Washington State 25 of my 27 years and every year, at least once I'd go up there usually for the whole month of July. Uh, so I have lots of experience up in Washington state and in Seattle and stuff like that. And so, you know, just because I know maybe for some of you, there might be some, uh, funny feelings about this. Uh, I figured I'd give you two quick, like my Seattle sports stories and, um, just from my time going to Seattle games, particularly Mariner games, because usually I'm up there in the summer and my grandmother is a huge baseball fan. So I'd always go with her. Uh, first one I'll talk about, and I wasn't able to dig this shirt out of the garage to show people, but uh, you know, those like player shirt, Jersey things where it's like a t-shirt, but it's got the player's name and number on the back, the jersey, if you will. Yep. the jersey. Um, one of, one of the ones I really wore out, and that's why it's in a box in the garage and not like in my wardrobe still, is a uh, Seattle Mariners Justin Smoke jersey. And I bought that at a Tacoma Rainiers game that I was at. I uh, went to a lot of Tacoma Rainiers games, a lot of Mariners games growing up. And uh, I bought that. And oh my gosh, did I take some flack from the other people at this Rainiers game for buying this Justin Smoke jersey? Now, in my mind, he was the, you know, switch hitting power first baseman that was going to really, you know take off for us uh turns out he did that in toronto and not seattle i think he hit like 200 his whole time in seattle uh but i took a bunch of flack from all these other people buying jerseys because you know they had just gotten in the justin smoke ones and they had just gotten in the dustin ackley jerseys and those things were flying off the shelf and i was the only one buying a justin smoke one everybody else was buying dustin ackley and they're like oh you fool well Justin smoke lasted a little bit longer with the Mariners than Dustin Ackley. I'm not sure either of these jerseys are anything we would want to wear proudly right now, (laughs) but I will bring that up just because that is a deep cut Seattle sports thing. And the other thing, um, is if you're on YouTube, you can see it now. I'm holding up a baseball and this is from my, actually my first Seattle Mariners baseball game that I ever went to in Seattle. Uh, I was almost 11, uh, three weeks away from turning 11. So I was 10 years old and, uh, sitting, uh, near the, uh, Mariners dugout. And in the pregame, you know, pitchers warming up before they head out there, warming up with the catcher who was Stan, the man, Wilson, for your Seattle sports fan, you know who this was. And, um, at the end of warmups as they're going out to take the field, obviously they're the home team, they're pitching first, right? Uh, he turns around, there's a big line of kids. I'm there. I'm not like, even really paying attention to what's happening because I was just taking in the ballpark and everything for the first time, singles me out, tosses a ball up to me. I catch it, which was very impressive because I didn't have glasses at the time. Uh, so I didn't do much of that back then. Uh, but I caught it and I caught this ball and he then jogs out onto the field to play in that game. That game was the May 4th, 2005 game where he, you know, tore his ACL and really, like, chewed up his knee and, and in a lot of ways really ended his long, illustrious career with the Mariners. He did play after that, but, you know, that was really the the beginning of the end there. So that's kind of my unique part of Seattle sports history and this ball, you know, being a part of that. This is the last warm-up pitch, you know, before that injury that he threw to a kid, and I was that kid. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I know the area. I know stuff like that. I do have experience rooting for the Seattle sports team. So just because I'm not up there right now doesn't mean I'm not, you know, still kind of plugged in in that way. And I will be making regular trips up there. I'm coming up uh, mid November for a while. We'll definitely make sure to let everybody know we can maybe try to set up some fan stuff. And then uh, I'll be coming up probably every other month throughout the course of this season. So uh, but yeah, that's, that's kind of what's going on again. It wasn't totally the plan. That's why we haven't really been open about this. Um, but again, it wasn't because we were trying to deceive anybody. It was just, things just didn't end up working out right now. So, uh, but that's that. Yep. Uh, good stories, Dylan.
0: <laughs> I, 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 still love those stories every time. I've definitely heard them a few times, uh, you know, knowing you for as long as I have, they never get old, especially that, uh, that one about in the van. So, um, yeah. Thanks for telling everyone that. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to to your next visit up here. We're going to have a good time.
1: Yeah. And, you know, you should be able to work something out press box wise, it seems like. So, yeah, uh, I'll be taking care of everybody. Don't worry. But uh, mm-hmm. that's that is going to be it for this episode of the podcast. Uh, you know, thanks, everybody, for joining us. As always, busy week of Kraken Hockey Ahead. Got several games in this upcoming week. Obviously, Rangers for tonight, for us, obviously, everybody else is hearing this on Monday. So for Monday, you got the Oilers game. That game's at 630. Then hosting the Red Hot Buffalo Sabres Thursday night. That's the 7 o'clock game, uh, I'm pretty sure. And then got Arizona Coyotes next Saturday. So, uh, you know, if the if the Sabres come in and do what they've been doing to everybody, maybe we can rebound uh, against Arizona next Saturday. And that's also a 7 o'clock start in Arizona, though. So uh, that's the schedule for this upcoming week should be good. Let's hope crack and keep this ball rolling and uh, we'll see you all next time.